0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 4, Episode 11. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by XS Sites, Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021, as of the recording of this episode, and I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and today, because he's back yet again with us, he's he is hereby promoted to special honorary co-host, and that is Charlie Perez of Big Panda Performance.
1: Awesome. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to another podcast of chock full of entertainment and knowledge.
0: Yes, indeed, entertainment and knowledge. I like that. And now, with this promotion, Charlie to special honorary co-host extraordinaire, uh, there's responsibilities that come with that. So, just just I'm, I'm putting you on notice.
1: Yeah, bring it on, baby.
0: <laughs> We've got a little special something for you all. In fact, I'm going to let you know right here, right now. Charlie has graciously proposed that we give away two copies of his book. You got a copy of it there. I got one right here. There it is. Two copies of Path of Focused Effort, which is a great, Mm -hmm. great book. Uh, If you want to learn how to shoot and shoot better, you should read that book. So Charlie's going to give away two copies to uh, two lucky viewers this evening So I know this will leave some of you podcast listening only folks out. I apologize for that. But uh, that's the way uh, Charlie decided we're going to go about it. Uh, So because we're we're hoping to have some good interaction with you folks online tonight. So stay tuned because you tell me if I'm wrong, you know, if we need to switch it up, Charlie. But we're going to give away one copy to Charlie's going to be the judge one copy to the person that asks what Charlie deems the best question of the evening and one copy to the person he deems asked the worst question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That'll give us a good mixture of people trying to earn the best question or earn the worst question.
0: So you decide if you want to be known for he who won a copy of Charlie's book by asking the best question or the worst question, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hopefully nobody gets too offended because they thought they were asking a good question and charlie decided it was the worst
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow wow
0: <laughs> okay or, or it could just be that charlie is gonna um uh, uh give two lucky winners that asked good questions a copy of this yeah. book that could
1: be too what- whatever we got to do as yeah. long as it's engaging and entertaining and people learn stuff I think that's the important part excellent excellent
0: guys uh, before we get into tonight's topic which by the way is going to be how to achieve maximum cold performance okay which I think is a fantastic topic that uh, Charlie came up with all on his own uh, you know a big head of his a big brain um, bec- which because here's the thing. Charlie is best known for his competitive shooting performance, okay, which he is very, very good at. I just returned from Limited Nationals as the seventh place best in the country, you know, and limited, so which is a phenomenal thing. I mean there's that's that's a that's a high bar to uh, to even be in the top ten. Uh, sometimes even the top 20 is is a pretty pretty phenomenal feat for a lot of folks. So Charlie is the seventh place finisher at Limited Nationals just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're we're proud of him for his accomplishments there, but that's what he's best known for. But here's the thing: whether you're a competitive shooter, right, or a defensive shooter, cold performance is still important because as a comp- competition shooter, you want to perform your best all the time because you want to win. Absolutely. And, as a defensive shooter. You only got one chance to make it count. So cold performance is all you've got. So uh, I think this is going to be an awesome topic to talk to talk about tonight. Tonight's episode is, first of all, honorarily sponsored by Big Panda Performance. So you, ha- you can head over to Charlie's website, bigpandaperformance.com, to uh, see what he's all about, and also order yourself a copy of his book if you'd like to get one. Uh, also tonight's episode sponsored by XS sites, who many of you know, is the title sponsor of our podcast excess sites is, I mean, I, I, you hear me probably say it so often that you're sick of hearing about it, but guys, they're awesome people, good people working a humble job based in Texas, making their sites all in house. Okay. They even do, you know, for the night sites that they, that they offer, They have the licensing and everything in place to manufacture their own tritium uh, 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 vials or whatever you call them that are inserted into the site. That's actually a really difficult thing to get to as a site manufacturer is to be able to handle radioactive material to actually make those night sites. Uh, That's how much they care about making a quality product in-house by American workers in in their home state of Texas. Uh, so check out excesssites.com I highly encourage that you do so. Tonight's other episode sponsor is the Elite Survival Systems. Well, it is Elite Survival Systems and highlighting their... I got it right here. Their Stealth SBR backpack, which I, I had to get my hands on because... Uh, I'll tell you, the thing that, it, that attracted me to this bag is that it's uh, very... Non-tactical looking. It just kind of looks like a, just like a backpack. In fact, I'm gonna just go to my screen here so we can so you can see this a little better. You know, it's just a, it's it's got some decent styling to it. I'll tell you, it's made really really nice, high quality. Uh, I mean, it's gonna last a long time. Uh, the materials are top notch. The zippers are top notch. Uh, they're very smooth. They work very very well. And that's really important because this is a bag that's designed to quickly access something like. Oh, 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 look at that. Some hardware. So I've got a little uh, 300 blackout um, pistol in there with a law tactical folder that fits. And it, I'll tell you, I was a little bit worried this bag was going to be really huge. It probably looks huge in the, in the camera there. But if I hold it back here closer to my body, you'll see it's a pretty normal looking backpack. Awesome. I've been really impressed with it. And I look forward to... Uh, rolling out with uh, my Stealth SBR backpack from Elite Survival Systems. Proud to have them on as a new sponsor of the podcast. So check them out. EliteSurvival.com is their website.
1: So can I ask you a question about that Absolutely. backpack? It looks pretty cool. Yeah. So do they have like dedicated like Velcro straps or something like that on the inside to kind of retain a yeah. firearm in a specific place?
0: Yeah, it's hard for me to show it on, on camera, and I know for those that are only listening to the podcast, you can't see it at all, but... <clears throat> What you'll see is, uh, see, it, it, it's it's it's, yeah, it's held totally in that retained, bag. Yeah. So we've got some uh, a strapping system of sorts. I don't know; it's a real technical term, but uh, basically, there's a strap here that's holding the top part of it. There's like a, a little pouch the that the yeah. bottom goes into. Um, there's a lot of different mounting points that you could also fashion up some some other straps or whatever you know if you had a uh, and you can customize and move everything around in this bag this other side of the panel is velcro molly straps Mm. it's a molly panel so i'm actually planning on putting one of our mountain man medical trauma kits and not like sandwiches and stuff
1: like candy bars and sandwiches
0: (laughs) (laughs) charlie Charlie knows what's important
1: (laughs) yeah and you gotta have the food
0: So it's, it's a really cool, uh, adaptable bag that if you want to carry, uh, you know, a little bit more impressive firepower in a, in a discreet manner that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go on a road trip to Arizona. Well, Hey, I'm going to throw my, uh, stealth SBR backpack in the truck and, and roll out, you know, so pretty cool setup without drawing unnecessary, uh, looky-loos your way. So yeah. Other questions?
1: Yeah, no, that, that looks pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Mark is asking if the bag will fit a Tavor. No, that's a little bit bigger of a setup. This, this so that um short barreled uh three hundred blackout pistol that's in that bag is a nine inch barrel. And if you're familiar with how long an AR fifteen receiver is, so that plus nine inches, and then you gotta ha- I still have to have the folding adapter for the stock to be able to fit all that in there. Um and that's about as small as you can go and get decent performance out of a 300 blackout so um, and and anything bigger than that like you could probably fit I think you could probably squeeze a uh, a 10 and a half inch barreled gun in there that had a folding adapter uh, adapter stock Uh, but a Tavor no way even though they're relatively short with their bullpup design they're still like 30 ish inches long 31 probably so not going to happen Anyway, all right. So, told you I have a great topic for you tonight. Okay, achieving maximum cold performance. <clears throat> Charlie's definitely got some thoughts on that because it's something that's, that Charlie is very good at, especially compared to me. I look at a lot of the matches I shoot, Charlie. And and, and by the way, folks, we'll, we'll talk quite a bit tonight from the perspective of shooting matches. And that's a relevant thing because uh, shooting Competitive matches is a is a stressful event, all right? Those of you that remember Matt Little being on my podcast, and Matt has legit real-world uh, experience sh- hunting and shooting and capturing bad guys, um, and, and you may remember that Matt said on my podcast that for him, shooting a USPSA match, especially early on when he was getting into it, was way more stressful than getting into a gunfight and that's like, because well, yeah,
1: you know, it's coming.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. So uh, the, the fact of the matter is shooting matches is, is a stressful event that it's difficult to achieve your best performance because of that, because it's really easy for us to mentally get in our own way, to, to be nervous, to get the shakes, to get, you know, have anxiety, to uh, worrying about results and outcomes and and thereby looking past, you know, the processes that get us to those outcomes. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of opportunities for us to be tested in our performance in a competitive shooting match. So, and I realized that that still doesn't completely fully translate over to a real life defensive, you know, situation of some kind. However, uh, our desire is the same thing, which is, get our best performance that we can with the very first shot that's fired because failure to do so in a match might cost us the match. And for some people, high level shooters like Charlie, especially, that's 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 stressful in and of itself when you realize you did not perform as well as you wanted to or as well as you should. But in the life or death situation, you might only get the one chance. And so you've really got to step up and perform right from the get-go. So wh- wh- where would you? Suggest that we start with this discussion, Charlie, and, and just you know, how, how where do we begin with getting our best performance right from a cold start?
1: Well, so I, maybe you make uh, you probably explained this to your listeners before, like what kind of the the game of practical shooting is, especially like USPSA or IDPA or IPSC or whatnot. Um, it, basically, you're in a scenario where you're on the range for three to six hours and you have maybe a grand total of two minutes of shooting across multiple different stages. And the game is set up in a manner where you're afforded a certain amount of time before you actually shoot the stage to physically and visually inspect the the stage of the course of fire. So you can quote unquote, dry fire or dry practice that stage with your hands and moving around the stage that kind of thing, but you absolutely can't, you know, draw your gun or point like any kind of aiming aiming device at targets and that kind of thing. So in each stage, you only get to shoot once, right? And that one time you get to shoot it is your score. So even though you're got a gun on your hip all day and you're on the range all day and you're shooting multiple stages every day, you're, you're essentially in a scenario where you're performing quote unquote cold on every stage it's not like you get to have a bunch of warm-up shots or a bunch of practice you know before like in sh- an actual shooting before you get to um actually shoot the stage like uh, you know a good comparison is probably like you've probably seen like uh boxers warm up you know before they get in the ring right they're like doing a pretty serious like workout and shadow boxing and that kind of stuff and you know getting you know sparring with partners and that kind of stuff before they are act, they get in the ring and then it goes ding and they got to perform mm. like that's a totally different scenario. So uh, I think that that's actually one of the important tenets around the the quote unquote practical parts of practical shooting is that you're forced in a scenario where you have to perform when you're not warmed up, when you're not practiced up in that manner of, okay, I've just shot 200 rounds. Now let, let me shoot these next 30 rounds for score. Like that just doesn't happen. So you have to deploy a, a match engagement methodology that affords you the opportunity to basically live fire the stage in a dry fire scenario that replicates that live fire scenario as realistic as possible. That way, when you <clears throat> actually perform the stage in live fire, that it it isn't this unknown weird thing that you're only get to do once. It's actually like, if you practice it effectively and dry practice, either physically or mentally, you know, mentally visualizing your performance at a realistic pace and all that good stuff, then it, it really does serve as an iteration of, of live firing the stage. And in the, in the practical shooting sports, like, like a, a lot of people like in USPSA, for example, you're afforded the opportunity to figure out your own strategy for the stage. And most stages offer many different decisions on like path of movement through a stage or order of engagement of targets or that kind of thing. Like where am I going to do my reloads and where am I going to run first or second or third? Or maybe there's like some more complex activated targets. And what is the sequence I need to shoot these activated targets in the most efficient manner and that kind of thing. And so a lot of competitors feel like if they come up with a strategy, like how am I going to do it? That equates to the programming of that process, which is a completely different effort. Like, and I, I explain that in my book path of focus effort that it's really, there's two completely different efforts. One is the strategy effort of figuring out what is the most efficient path or manner of tackling the shooting challenge. And then after you figure out your strategy and you decide on a strategy, then you can deploy that in a manner of, of programming that performance. And the better you program the performance, the more you can execute on a subconscious level. And performing anything at a subconscious level obviously requires a tremendous amount of practice, right? And like a common correlation is like driving your car. Like when you first got your license and you're first driving a car, everything is is unique. You're consciously thinking about where are my feet, where are my hands, where am I in the lane, are, am I using my turn signals, am I in the right gear, you know, and all that good stuff, whereas you do that for a certain amount of time, then changing gears, like if you're driving a manual, you know, changing gears or running the clutch, that just becomes second nature, quote unquote, it's subconscious. Right, or using your turn signal when you're going to change lanes, or looking in your blind spot when you're going to change lanes. You know, those those things that you you do um, independently, subconsciously frees up your conscious mind to deal with other things. Right. And that same methodology applies to the practical shooting sports. The more I can practice skills to a subconscious level, I can rely on that autopilot, the subconscious autopilot, to get that stuff done. So that, that also dramatically simplifies my stage programming effort, right? Like a good example would be if I'm putting myself in a shooting position properly in the proper location, then the targets are going to get shot in the most efficient manner that my subconscious feels is good enough. So uh, at my skill level where I'm at, I, I don't have to program well i'm going to come in this position and i'm going to shoot this target first and that one second and that one third that kind of thing like i've done enough iterations of those same pretty much all the different arrays to know that the most important thing is is if i put myself in the shooting position properly to access all the targets in a very efficient and structured structured manner that they're going to get shot as quickly and efficiently as possible so It's what I like the advice of a programming effort that I'd give a, a C or B class shooter would be different than a master or a grandmaster shooter, because those two different skill levels of shooters, they have different quantities of skills that they've practiced to a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think that the, the predominant thing that is a, a log jam for a lot of people or competitors In in practical shooting sports, or or even in a concealed concealed carry scenario, is that it's the more you can mitigate distractions, the better. Because distractions and things that happen that you don't expect, whether that's manufactured distractions or distractions that are outside of your control, when you, you we have to deal with those distractions consciously, right? And the more Mental bandwidth that we have, because we're allotting or allowing our subconscious to do those very fundamental skills, that opens up more bandwidth, conscious bandwidth to deal with those distractions. But it, you know, it kind of it's kind of like uh, you know making your bed, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't make your bed, and the next evening you go and get in your bed, it's like, well, where's my pillows and where's my sheets, and I, well, I got to rearrange everything before I can even get in bed, right? Well to mitigate that distraction at the end of the day, you can make your bed when you get up in the morning. Right. And that, that same kind of process applies to very basic stuff, like making sure your gun is clean. Right. Are you servicing your gun in a reliable manner? Does it function reliably? Are you using ammunition that's reliable? Right. Are you, you know, did you get enough sleep the night before? Right. Are you, should you not go to an event because you have other things going on in your life that are distracting you while you're at the event like all of those things serve as distractions and the more that you can mitigate those things the better well that was a really long intro but hopefully that <laughs> provides some some ground you know level of you know, being able to kind of set up the the foundation of being able to perform cold
0: yeah yeah. I mean, well, it, cause there's a lot of truth in what you said there, uh, you know, and, and a big piece of that is the more stuff that we can be subconsciously competent with. I mean, it's like what you said, uh, you've, you've practiced enough, you've shot enough, you've done enough of your respective, uh, uh, you know, competitive activity that, um, there's certain things you no longer have to really think about. It just, it just happens, uh, because, it's a, it's a, it's a subconscious level of competence. And so, um, the more you, we can do that with just about anything, the, uh, the more it frees up mental bandwidth and processing, uh, I like to talk about it in the defensive context of the more competent I am at handling the tool, whatever that tool is. And, and a lot of us think in terms of the gun, but it could be pepper spray. It could be a knife. It could be all kinds of things, uh, even pure hand-to-hand, uh, combative type, you know, techniques. Um, the more competent I am with whatever the tool is, the more I can focus on the actual problem that's before me. It's like, you know, the better we are at driving, the less we actually think about the driving and we simply just do the thing like you know the the mm-hmm. the, the brain is the hand is the foot is the gas pedal and the steering wheel and and the, ultimately the car like the brain is the car and the car simply becomes an extension of that I, that's how that's one of my big motivating drivers in pursuing excellence in competitive shooting is that i've desired to get to where handling and, and I arguably I would say that I'm probably at a level where handling a gun and shooting a gun is pretty, you know, it's a, it's a, it's at a competent level enough that I could probably do a lot of things automatically, but now I enjoy it well enough that I want to keep going and keep excelling. But the more that, that you become competent in those skills, then the more the gun or the tool or whatever is just an extension of of you the actual person in the brain and like that's a that's a wonderful place to be part of that is that you learn and discover where your limitations are your own personal limitations are and there's a there's a certain level of confidence i think that comes with that like
1: uh, yeah so i mean i don't want to cut you off but go ahead I, i think that there's with any with any kind of we need to practice the game that we play. And there's a lot of people that take that way out of context, right? They, when they go out and they live fire practice, they, they only live fire, Mm -hmm. right? They're there at the range. They drove however many miles it takes to get to the range. And they brought their 500 rounds. And that's their goal is to shoot those 500 rounds. And there's no, in, in those competitors brains, Taking the time while you're on the range to not live fire is like abnormal to their thought process because they're like, Hey, I drove all the way out here and I spent all this time and all this, whatever to come out here to shoot. Well, the the reality is, is that there, there are absolutely certain skills that we have to shoot a tremendous amount of ammunition to learn, Mm -hmm. right? Trigger control, you know, grip you know, gun handling stuff, you know, those like there are absolutely skills that we, the gun needs to go boom to learn that stuff. But at some point, you got to accept the fact that, okay, my trigger manipulation skills are good enough. Okay, now I have to train the skill of actually performing cold, meaning I'm going to go to the range. And one of the things that I like to do when I go to the range is I like to set up either like a a stage or a section of a stage. And then I'll set the whole thing up. Like as if I was attending a match and helping set up a match, pull all the props out of the barn, set it all up, staple up targets, you know, do it as legit as possible to replicate that. Hey, I just worked out and pounded a bunch of nails, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. Hauled a bunch of walls, that kind of situation. And then I'll mimic the exact same scenario I'm exposed to in a match. Meaning, I'll walk the stage, figure out where all the targets, what are my options strategy-wise, figure out the strategy of the stage. Once I figure out the strategy of the stage, then I'll program that stage. And the programming effort could be multiple iterations of a physical dry fire of it, and absolutely multiple iterations of a mental rehearsal of it, right? And then once I feel like I've physically and mentally rehearsed the stage enough, then I will shoot the stage live fire, I'll unload and show clear, reholster, and then I'll go score the targets. I'll tape all the targets. I'll paint all the steel. I will reset that stage as if it was a normal match. And then I'll restart that whole process. I'll assess what I felt like I did good or bad or otherwise. Then I'll start to work on those different sections or components of the stage where I felt like I didn't perform as I should. And then I, you know, dry fire-wise or dry practice-wise, work on those elements until I feel like I have hammered out those issues. And then once I feel like enough iterations of relearning or figuring out that section of the stage is done, then I will live fire it again for that one additional time. And usually the frequency between shooting in that scenario for me is about 15 or 20 minutes. And when I tell people I don't shoot, my frequency of shooting is very long in duration compared to most other people. Like I can be on the range for you know four to six hours and shoot a hundred rounds. And that explodes people's brains because they're like, well, how like what were you doing? Were you screwing around? You know, like, no, that whole time I'm working at it, but the bulk of my work effort is in dry fire because Mm -hmm. that is the skill test that I need to hone to perform cold in a match. Because I'm honing that skill of How do I maximize and optimize my performance when my only tool in the bag to hone that performance is dry practice, right? So Mm -hmm. that, that to me is the big piece that a lot of people are missing in their practice scenarios is when you go out in live fire, go out to the range, I should say, you need to have a good mixture of not, yes, you need to pound it out, shoot a bunch of rounds, figure out a concept or a skill. That is absolutely going to be an element of your training, but then you need to have a piece that is very match biased. Like how do I train myself, how to learn a stage, strategize a stage, program a stage, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and then replicate a match scenario as much as possible to do that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Oh yeah. No, I I think that's really... uh... I think that's really awesome. I mean, I've heard you talk about that before and and you're right. It, does, it is kind of mind-blowing to think I'm going to spend 6 hours at the range and I'm going to fire a 100 rounds or something close to that and like you do the math it's like, well that's like not even 20 rounds an hour. <laughs> you yeah. know, like 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 that and to some people that probably would not sound very fun and I know a lot of people's motivation in going to the range is at least in part to have some fun. Uh but You know, you got guys like you that are some, you know, one of the best limited division shooters in the country, uh, as is recently proven, and 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 maybe maybe other guys that are really dependent on carrying their gun for personal defense. Like, it's great when training is fun, but it's but for some of us, uh, there is fun in pursuit of excellence. Which Absolutely. means a lot of times doing work because it takes it's work amazing. to get
1: good. There's a whole bunch of embracing <laughs> the suck. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It, <laughs> and it, Absolutely. So, uh, like we, we can use like Riley and I had an opportunity to do some live fire training together. And this is like every once in a while, like actually we have, we have a good opportunity here in, in on the front range of Colorado where there's a lot of practical shooting matches, USPSA matches and whatnot to attend. And every once in a while, there's a weekend day where there isn't a match. And that that happened this past weekend. And like when, when that happens, I like to gather up some friends and like kind of make a mini match and have like six or eight guys get together and go out and quote unquote practice. And we'll set up a full size uh, field course stage that we would do and have, uh, there's always a purpose to this stage it's not just a random stage at least in my mind like i want to have elements that have kicked my butt from matches i've attended or known things that i have issues with and i'll put those elements in this stage and then we'll set up the stage in a manner and that we can use it in multiple different manners like either start in the back and shoot to the front or start in the front and shoot to the back you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and when i go to these in these practice scenarios They're actually a unique subset of my match training where I purposefully limit my physical rehearsals of the stage. Like I do not, I force myself to not physically walk or mimic the sections of the stage to replicate scenarios that I experience in major matches when there's just too many bodies on a Mm -hmm. stage to do that. Like some competitors require like complete full physical access to a stage. Nobody else is on it so they can run around and try everything out and try everything 10 different times. And for some people, if you, if that's what you need to succeed in your strategy and your program, great. But there's a lot of times when you attend major events where you just don't have that opportunity. So I use this training, this training scenario to replicate that major match situation where there's too many people on the stage. I'm not going to have a lot of physical repetitions on the stage. So I'm going to, I'm going to hundred percent value my few physical repetitions and then put all the homework into my, my visual um, internal mental rehearsals of the stage. Right. And my goal during these practice sessions is to be able to shoot the stage and have the same quote unquote performance or hit factor from the first run all the way to the last run. No matter how many iterations or times I shoot the stage, I want to be able to replicate that same performance over and over and over and over and over. And it's not a matter of me holding back my performance so I can perform consistently. I'm absolutely giving that performance every ounce of effort I can, but I I don't want it to be a scenario where I need three or four or five iterations before I perform to a level I desire. Hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And if you don't put yourself in that scenario on a regular basis, that's part of training. How do I perform cold,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. You need to put yourself in that scenario. Very common. And, and another aspect of it that I really like about bringing out buddies to <laughs> train with, and it, it replicates the same social interaction distraction that we all get exposed to at matches. Because everybody's joking around and talking about their new blaster and, oh, did you see that? And you're ROing other competitors, Mm -hmm. right? So you're taking on tasks while you're doing that. It's not like you just get to sit back and let everybody do everything, right? And then, oh, now I'm up. Now I can perform because that's not realistic either, right? So you have to be able to build all of those distraction mitigation tools by replicating those scenarios in practice. And that's like, I I don't tell many people that I practice with about that. Like, what is my purpose in doing this? But that is the primary purpose of why I invite a good group of guys to come out and practice because it replicates a match scenario very well. And it provides me an opportunity to not have that endless physical rehearsal of the stage or the endless, let me just run it a gazillion times until I can figure it out. I have a very finite amount of of times I can physically rehearse it or actually shoot it. And I, I I think that that is really where the rubber meets the road and building that skill of how do I perform cold? Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah. uh, All good thoughts. Uh, One thing I was thinking about that would be maybe more applicable to the uh, defensive oriented individual would be as far as, you know, to start kind of drawing some, some correlations, uh, over to those folks, and I. And by the way, I'm I'm someone that considers myself in in both realms. I'm very much <clears throat> heck. I'm the host of the concealed carry podcast. Like by golly, like defensive shooting is important to me. But I also shoot competitively and enjoy that very much, and 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 enjoy the thrill of you know trying to get better. Um, but uh, you know, one thing I've talked about before, and there's even a, at least a video or two out there, uh, like on our concealed carry. YouTube channel, um, where I demonstrate some drills that are done cold, and I talk about doing them cold. And specifically, one of those that comes to mind is, and, and I'm going to take credit for it to some degree because I know I'm the first one to ever put this out there publicly, uh, for sure. Because I I I scoured the interwebs to see if that was the case, and, and what that is 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 what I refer to as the Jack Wilson drill. Right, so everybody, or most everybody's familiar with the with the uh, the uh, shooting at the church in, in northern Texas, uh, the White Settlement Texas church shooting, where Jack Wilson, our hero, you know, uh, from the back of of this sanctuary or chapel, draws his Sig P two twenty nine and drops the guy with one shot to the head from like fifteen ish yards away. Right, like that was a phenomenal feat. Uh, phenomenal because Jack was totally cold. Uh, it came out of nowhere. He had very little warning. He had no warm up. Uh, and he had one shot to make it count because that guy had turned after shooting two other individuals and was turning and heading towards what is believed to be the pastor or the preacher or whoever was toward, you know, it was leading the congregation at that point. Right. Jack tr- draws his 229 fires, one shot. Drops the threat, okay, and so you know I I remember being inspired by seeing that and seeing the video that came out of that, and thinking you know let's let's put together a simple shooting test that as best we can in a in a single drill uh, uh, tests us on the on our ability to be able to do that, and uh, when I create drills a lot of times I try to I like to make things as attainable or as easy to set up by just about anybody as possible. So I like working with easy to, uh, uh, you know, come up with targets for instance. And so I was like, you know what, we're going to do a three by five card, which is close enough to a headshot. I think in terms of a standard, we're gonna do a three by five card at 15 yards. And my goal is, and I don't always do it every time now, but for about eight or nine months, every trip to the range, I shot that thing cold with my carry gun in my usual carry position with my carry ammo that my gun should be sighted in for and would show up to the range, throw up my target, put up my three by five card, pace off 15 yards and then shot timer, beep, draw, Oof, see if I can get that one shot. And the par time is, is three seconds, but I, and that's my general part-time that I tell everybody they should at least try to strive for my personal part-time is I like to get that done in two seconds or less, draw headshot 15 yards under two seconds for sure. And be able to do that repeatedly. And that was my cold shooting drill. I did every trip to the range for like nine months and I still pull it out every once in a while. You know, like, Hey, let's test myself on that again. Um, I think that's a, phenomenal standard to strive for because i mean that's intimidating for a lot of folks to look at that little three by five card 15 yards away and go i'm going to hit that nine times out of ten every time i do this cold having not touched my gun or you know not having not fired or practiced really for a week or two or three or however long it's been and i'm going to drill that three by five card because that's what jack had to do that day to save lives like that's and I actually try to put myself in that position, like think to myself that this shot right here, right now, has to be accomplished. And if not, then something bad happens.
1: And Wait, you know, do you make something bad happen?
0: You could, you could. And I know where you would go with that. Yeah. And, and I, I want to, I want to hear you uh, uh, throw that out there. But just for me personally, for a long, you know, this was before I really knew you. Um, and, and and was familiar with one of your strategies for that, but just, I would just literally sit there and think like, you know, put myself in, in Jack Wilson's shoes. I'm sitting there or standing there in the con- congregation and like realizing that I, this is a do or die. When I do that drill, I don't, regardless of pass or fail, I don't do it again. Cause at the very least, like, cause I'll tell you, when you fail, you're like, man, like, I'm going to do that again because I got to, I got to accomplish it. Right. Because nobody likes walking away from the range as a failure, but that's one drill. I never repeat more than once. You know, and I never do more than once because if mm-hmm. I fail, I want to think on that for like a week or two until my next opportunity. So that I'm like, so it bugs me, you know, and that just like creates even more pressure and anxiety surrounding that. But I'd, I'd like to hear your thought about some strategies, how we can create more pressure at the range.
1: Well, It's easy. It just comes in the penalties, Mm -hmm. right? So if you apply a personal penalty to failure, that is an actual penalty, not an, oh shucks, whoops, that's too bad. It it needs to be a tangible penalty to yourself. and, And people can do that in many different manners, right? Like a good, like one way that a lot of people that I've seen be successful is if you go to the range with a certain quantity of ammo, and you're failing at a specific skill set, and you keep failing at that thing and you're like, I want to fix it. I want to fix it. Well, if you start to take away your ammunition, like, so if you go to the range with, let's say 200 rounds, and every time you fail at that thing, you take away 50 rounds. You don't, you have four chances to screw it up before you got to go home. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it could be a, a physical thing, right? So you could say, Oh, if I, miss this target, I have to do 25 burpees or run a lap around the range or do so many push-ups, or whatever, right? You could, you could do, you know, apply penalties in many different manners. But I, I think that as, as adults, that we can, cons- most people consider, you know, shooting at the range as a pleasurable thing to do. And I want to go out here and have fun. That's where they, they really leave out the embrace the suck factor. And part of the suck is having the proper penalty uh, to apply when you do not succeed, mm-hmm. because when you when your only penalty is darn it I wish I didn't do that let me try it again that's not a penalty
2: mm-hmm.
1: right so yeah. if you apply that that penalty methodology in whatever manner that you know motivates you you know like for me it, it's a it's a fifty mile drive one way for me to the range to practice and live fire right? So it's one hour each way in driving, right? So there's the time cost, there's the gas cost of that. Then there's, I've been out there a certain amount of hours, you know, our time is worth some kind of money, right? You know, and for me, that there was, I, I hate to say it, there was a lot of shortened training sessions, because I set the proper penalty that guess what, you don't get to play anymore, when you fail enough times, right? And, As your skills improve, that penalty needs to increase as well to scale, right? You got to scale the penalties along with your skill Mm set, right? So I think it's it's a great drill that you're talking about, you know, whatever motivates you to say, hey, let me measure my cold performance. And then if you tie a realistic and and tangible penalty to that, then that's going to force that additional pressure that you need to perform, Mm -hmm. right?
0: yeah I was gonna I was gonna I was just thinking that uh, I can I can imagine one very extreme way you could uh, approach it is you could go to the range and every time you're like, I start my practice session by shooting the Jack Wilson drill. If I pass it, I get to continue practicing today. If I fail it, I turn around and I go home.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, i mean and you go home and like you you fired one round <laughs> and you're <Yep>. done <laughs> like that you, would gotta, definitely you gotta you gotta bookend
1: that right you gotta bookend it right so it's not only just hit the target it's also hit the target within a certain time yeah yes right so you can't say oh well now i'm just gonna take 10 years to hit this thing and i will hit it for sure so i can practice the rest of the day
0: yeah right? well that's that's why jack wilson drill has a part-time <laughs> has a part-time standard man yeah. And like I say, like when I'm, when I'm talking to the general public, I say, you know, that and part of that's because that's about how long Jack Wilson had to make his shot. And part of it is because I think it's a bit more realistic for most shooters, but I'm always all about creating a, a standard for you individually as a shooter that that's appropriate for you as a shooter. So for the general public, I say a three second part time. Okay. Uh, on that drill, uh, for myself, i tr- I try to achieve 100 percent performance with a two second part time and I'm usually around one point like one and three quarter seconds like one point seven one point eight somewhere in that ballpark I could push that even lower uh and, and like make sure I get that shot in one point five you know seconds uh on, on that three by five card at fifteen yards and I know there's some shooters that could push it probably you know well beyond that that are you know even more skilled than I am but like i, I for me I've taken it to a level where it's an acceptable standard, uh, in my opinion, um, that's a reasonable real world worthy standard. but uh, anyway, just something I thought about. and 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 then another common thing I've done in practices is that I've started with the Jack Wilson drill. So when you complete that, it's you've only fired one shot. You're still basically cold. Like I don't call that a warm up at all. And then if, you know I can create a number of other drills. Um, that maybe are more commonly used or fam- familiar to, to defensive or by the defensive community shooting community uh, and you know run a couple of those while you're still generally cold and I, I still think that there's a lot of value in doing that and, and applying some of the strategies like what you even talked about here today um, you know even taking advantage of some dry fire practice at the range I think all has huge, Uh, benefits to it Um, some examples would be run the jack wilson for one shot maybe turning around and doing a uh, well the very first drill in my class standards is is a draw to two shots and i like that as opposed to just draw to one shot at seven yards on an a zone um, because two shots means that you have to keep yourself honest like you don't just get lucky with it you don't just draw and throw a shot at the a zone and oh i got it cool i got one because if you if your grip sucks you might get one but you rarely will get two right <laughs> that's why i like draw to two shots a little bit more and draw to one shot and so you know that th- i my my new cold standard would be basically something like that would be i might do the jack wilson and then do my draw to two shot standard and then do an actual build drill, which is six six shots at seven yards, and then do my transition standard and my throttle control standard. And through all of that, I will have fired no more than twenty five rounds, which is not a lot, and I can I can work through each of those in a deliberate manner, and really test and evaluate myself in my cold cold performance uh, capability. Um, you know, in the, in the first 30 to 45 minutes on the range. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Any, any further thoughts about that?
1: Well, I mean, beyond that, I mean, I think that the more you can simulate like a realistic scenario, the better, Mm -hmm. right. You know, like if you're, you know, training you want to test your concealed carry first shot out of the gun skill, you know, I would replicate a very, similar scenario right you know like you're getting out of your car and as soon as you get out of your car you have to shoot something mm-hmm. right yeah and that you know something like that like yeah. instead of oh let me set up this target and let me pace it off and let me get all oh, i'm getting ready to do this and this is my one time like you don't get that opportunity in, in real life right mm, true yep so i mean it yep it, it to me it's all about you know replicating what you're tasked with performing in in practice. Mm -hmm. right and i think a lot of people get distracted around the actual shooting part and they think that just because the gun is going boom that equals training Mm -hmm. which for a lot of the stuff that we need to do like gun manipulation stuff or moving around a a stage or cover effectively and that kind of stuff that you don't even need a gun in your hands to do that, Mm -hmm. that thing right yeah yeah yeah, so very good. I mean, another strategy like that I like to use from a competitive perspective is that I, I really don't, I don't treat individual matches as a separate event. You know, like people, like I went to the nationals, that was quote unquote, a nationals event. Mm-hmm. And that was 18 stages, separate stages of you had to shoot in that one match. I kind of consider my quote unquote nationals is the whole year of stages. Right. And then that using that mentality of not only using matches, I attend each stage within each one of those matches as a huge combined match. I also integrate all of those practice sessions that I do, that I try to replicate that match performance into that to always have like, there's really not for me, there's not a scenario where this match is more important than the other, Mm. or this practice is less important than this match. It, it is all important to me and they are, are all worth the same quote unquote value. Mm. Like there's, it's not like I'm never going to go into Oh, this is a club match. I can screw around and not pay attention. Right, well, right. If I breed that skill of not paying attention, then now that's I'm manufacturing a distraction of just the simple decision is, does this match matter or does it not? Mm. Right. Versus all the matches matter. Mm. And since all the matches matter, it's all just one big match, right? And maybe I could say it like I've been playing USPSA since two thousand eight. You know, I've been shooting a what is that twelve, thirteen year match,
2: <laughs> right? Mm.
1: I, I like that. that. And That's that, a- I think for you, like thinking about like I, being able to come out of the gate on the first stage, hitting on all cylinders. Maybe thinking about it from that perspective will help you.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: I like that. I like that.
0: Um, I will say I've been getting better at that, you know, first stage performance. Um, And some of it's been because of conversations you and I have had about, um, about not trying to treat stages or matches differently. You know, just, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm the big time uh, sandbagger because I like throw away Mm -hmm. more, you know, more classifiers than I probably should. (laughs) for a long time it's like
1: you don't have the opportunity to shoot as many matches as a lot of other people think that in itself right it's true that's true because you're busy working
0: so i've 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 put more uh emphasis on those matches where i know i'm going to shoot a classifier because i'm like yes it's opportunity to level up And, and and i've actually um i've stopped thinking about classifiers almost entirely like at this point i actually don't care like, people, people come and like, hey, so uh, when are you going to make Grandmaster? I'm like, at this point, I don't know. Because there was a time where I was like, I'm going to make Grandmaster this year. Mm-hmm. Well, then what happened was I was putting a lot of emphasis and pressure on myself to do well at every classifier and was over trying on those classifiers yep. and then throwing those out. And then nothing's counting. And then I'm not, you know, getting, you know, shooting the scores I need to shoot to actually you know make a difference towards classification and so now I'm like you know what I don't even care I'll keep being the sandbagger that I am although it's not as bad being master class but but uh <laughs> you, you know that like when it happens it happens like I no longer have a specific goal of I'm going to make grandmaster by whatever time
1: frame like it, well, if you if you just stay on the mentality of I want to always assess and improve performance then the classification, your classification will follow as yeah. needed. Right. So if, if you're always striving to improve your performance and do things more efficiently and effectively, then, and, and you absolutely start treating classifier stages as just any other stage, then it's going to end up what it is. Right. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. I, so and, we, I, and I agree. And I, I would say generally my attitude is that as far as like historically my match performance has always been probably more biased towards like being better at like where I finish in a match than what my classification would sometimes suggest. Um, and I think that's cause like, I just was always trying to do um, just always trying to do my best regardless of what the match was, but um but I think in the back of my mind, there was always this this subtle like I got to make GM, I got to make GM, you know, because I got guys like Tim Herron, even you know, and Scott Jelinski. They're like, man, I'm like you should be GM already, kind of thing, you know. I was like, come on, shut your trap, like, let me just focus and do my thing, you know. Stop putting that, uh, you know, don't be putting that evil on me, Ricky Bobby, you know. Like, <laughs> and, and, and and so yeah, like at this point, like I don't even I don't even worry about what my classification is. I don't even I, I don't remember the last time I looked. At my classification or what my actual percentage was, I as far as I could tell you, my percentage could have gone down and I wouldn't know. I know I'm I know I'm M M class, but I have no idea what my percentage is, so I'm not thinking about
1: it. I'm just focused on getting better at yeah. match performance. That's a good way to look at it. Should we answer some of these questions that are in absolutely. the absolutely,
0: absolutely, and and we haven't had a ton, but uh, but we Maybe got a couple answer now. Answer so. some of these. So here's Elkie. Elkie, I think, is going to be one of the winners of a book because <laughs> he's like one of mm-hmm. the only guys answer, asking questions.
1: So be it, man.
0: So uh, have you, Charlie, He he's asking you, have you ever competed with a Glock or Sig and why or why not?
1: Uh, so I have not competed with a Glock or a Sig specifically, but from a plastic fantastic gun, I have uh, competed with an XDM, Springfield XDM, and also a CZ-P10F. I've uh, shot both of those platforms in competition shooting and that kind of thing. And the platform that you end up using in competition is really kind of predicated around the performance of the firearm. And some of it's like, as long as it's reliable and accurate and that kind of stuff. It's really not the the arrow. It's always the Indian getting the job done. But on the like, a, I choose to shoot the limited division, which is um, high capacity magazines, usually double stacked 1911s or 2011s, and predominantly I, I choose to shoot those because the um, array of options and tuning options for those firearms is very extensive. You know, so if I want to put any kind of size or height or dimensions of sights on that gun, I can get those you know springs or guide rods or weights of this or magwells or any kind of permutation of tuning that tool to fit me better that that's a good that's the primary reason why I choose that tool for my competition in Denver. And I wouldn't say that like there's been plenty of evidence of high top level shooters shooting, Glocks or SIGs or any of those plastic you know, based guns at a very high competitive level and the world arena and doing really good good with that. So it's not a matter of one gun is better than the other. I, w- I would say that the the re- reliable and functional guns <laughs> are going to be the things that you want to pick. You know, and since we're all humans and we're unique in our hands and our arms and our strength is all different. You, you absolutely need to have a platform that you're using that you can tune to you, right?
0: Mm, yep. Yeah, totally can understand that. And I know that's, I know you're huge with that. Like you, you talk about things at a level uh, and your expectations of your equipment is at a level that is definitely beyond mine. And, you know, that I mean, you spend a lot more time uh, tinkering with the tuning of your guns than, than, than I have, certainly. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I mean, that, that to me, that's part of the enjoyment of the hobby mm-hmm. is figuring out what, what components and features and functions do, mm-hmm. like, what do they do? Is this better? Is it worse? Is mm-hmm. a, a lighter thing make, you know, performance better or does a heavier yeah. thing or whatever, right? Yeah. I, I like that part of it.
0: Well, you know, it's like this last Saturday when we were at the range together and, uh, uh, you, uh, I mean, you, you, are on team Atlas. So you're running, you know, really nice double stack, uh, uh, you know, 1911 style pistol. And, um, you pulled out your gun at one point and I think it was your 41st and you did basically like a, a double, you know, like a double tap folks want to think of Mm -hmm. it that way. Uh, what was that probably about 20 yards,
1: 18 yards? Uh, I think it was 17.
0: Okay, so 17, right. 17 yards. Yep. And you pulled out your gun and whack, whack, you know, two, like probably like 16 splits, probably. Yeah, I think it was um, around that. It was, was pretty spicy at that distance. Uh, and, uh, you know, look at the target and like they're pretty close to each other, you know. And then you pulled out a, was it a nine millimeter that you were comparing? Yeah, is, Or was so it also 40.
1: It's also a 40, but the, the difference between those two di- different guns is like one is a kind of a standard style of a build where mm-hmm. the slide and the barrel are separate where the second gun is a, we call it a, a sight block style oh. gun where mm-hmm. the side is actually on top of the barrel and there's a block on the front of the barrel. Yep. It's not a comp out there, but it's just really what it is. Just weight. So mm-hmm. there's more weight in the barrel versus the other gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they're both set up w- basically w- the same.
0: Would you mind sharing kind of like what, what was it specifically that you were looking for from an analytical perspective between those two guns as you fired them side by side?
1: So that for me, we all have different grip pressures on the gun, right? Just how we grip it and mechanics against the recoil. Like we can't stop the recoil from happening. There's always going to be a certain amount of muzzle flip, but we can absolutely tune how does the the muzzle return when the slide closes again? And for me, I not that I want to, rely on double tapping at stuff like i want to see separate side pictures and fire each each shot as a separate event but i don't want to have a scenario where let's say that the recoil spring is too heavy and that causes the muzzle to dip as the slide snaps back forward i don't want to have to wait for that dip event to be over before i can fire the next shot so that was a test and and realistically before I had a, a 10 pound recoil spring in there and th- that day I was testing a nine pound recoil spring and mm-hmm. seeing if I could in the 10 pound recoil spring replicated almost the same amount of muzzle return, but it had a little bit less muzzle rise because there's less spring you know, effort you're fighting against when the s- slide comes back and cycles. Mm-hmm. So, and it, like there, there's a lot of people who think like, Oh, there's a magical spring or what's this you know, common? Like, tell me your exact setup. And I'll tell people my exact setup as far as springs and all that stuff, but you're not gripping my gun, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. I'm not gripping your gun. So you you need to go through those efforts of tuning your stuff to you just as I'm going through that effort of tuning this stuff to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. Very cool. 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 All right. So there's a couple other questions here. Um, hmm. Let's see. Also from Elkie, Elky Monroe. He says, uh, how do you, con- and he, he corrected in a follow-up comment. Wait, he, he wasn't saying burger. He was saying urge. How do you control the urge to go faster when shooting a stage in competition?
1: Ooh. Yeah. So that controlling the urge to go faster, that's, that's a kind of an aspect of trying. Mm -hmm. Instead of just letting the process happen. So, what you're the way I like to think about it is that I'm I afford myself the opportunity to try or manufacture a performance in training. So, I want to try to make a better part time or I want to try to shoot this distance of target faster. I want to try to perform better. But in a match scenario, there's no latitude for trying. All I can do is default back to what I know I can do and what I'm confident in deploying. Because at the start of the discussion, I was talking about distractions, right? I don't want to manufacture a distraction by thinking to myself, oh, these targets are really close. I'm going to try to shoot them really fast. That's That always is going to result in a worse performance than just letting the shooting happen at whatever pace it wants to happen. And people will sometimes misconstrue that as, well, if I just let it happen, it's just going to happen in a lackadaisical manner. Well, that means that, guess what? In your practice, when you quote unquote, let it happen, you're not pushing the aggression, right? So you should always be pushing the boundaries of aggression. And if you don't have that slight tickle of this is at almost at my limit of performance and that not feel normal, then guess what? You got to put a lot more effort in your practice to practice in that zone or that mode where you're almost at that mode of what some people may say out of control, mm-hmm. right? Just be below that out of control aggression level should be quote unquote normal, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's kind of like, you know, if if a you know race car driver that they go around the track and the track demands to be competitive that you drive 200 miles an hour, Right, you you have to make driving 200 miles an hour normal, and that means that in your practice, guess what? You got to drive 250 miles an hour, because that's going to that when you pull it, rein it in to only 200 miles an hour, that is going to feel normal, but that's also going to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, sure. So hopefully, absolutely. The other part of it is that a lot of people's performances they feel like they have a schedule in their head. Like this thing should be happening at this predetermined schedule. Well, our desired schedule versus reality, that's super important that those two different things align, right? And that's when we're talking about the dry firing, either physically or mentally, we need to dry fire the stage or the performance at a realistic pace. Because if I, let's say that a stage takes 10 seconds to shoot physically, if I dry fire that physically or mentally, and it's a 7 second performance then is when I do live fire that thing when I get a couple seconds into that performance I'm going to have that feeling of I'm behind schedule because yes I'm behind schedule of my b- visualization or expectation that this should be a 7 second stage but it's turning out to be a 10 second stage
2: mm.
1: so I whenever I'm dry firing a stage mentally or physically I try to make that stuff as realistic as possible from a, a physical perspective, right? I'm not going to like just randomly point over at a target, not even pretend like I'm trying to s- see a sight picture or not, just point my hand at a target and go, boom. Like for a lot of targets, that's not reality, mm-hmm. right? A lot of targets, we point over at it and we go, boom, boom. That is reality. So for a yeah. lot of my students you know, in my class that I do, like we, I, I tell them, I want to hear your boom booms hmm. when you're dry fire on the stage. So I can assess their validity around realistic performance and drive practice. Hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Oh yeah. yeah that that that's uh, it, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I liken it to the journey that Luke Skywalker goes through in his quest to become a jedi uh you know and he's working with with uh, yoda and well and obi-wan you know and and like they're, they're trying to give him all this wisdom and you know and stuff and like um but i always come down to that scene with uh with yoda and you know luke's struggling to to uh be able to utilize and control the force and he's just like do or do not there is no try and like that is a that's a that's become a, like a a phrase i repeat to myself a lot now <laughs> at a mm-hmm. match especially at my matches especially like practice is the place where i try i absolutely try and practices but at a match it's like no i have to either do or do not i cannot try here i just have to trust in in all the stuff i have practiced up to this point i have to just let it happen and if i try then i will overtry and I'll get my own way and I'll end up like Luke, you know, where I'm like trying to do headstands and balance things and you know in midair and all whatever. And then everything's just gonna fall and collapse and I'm gonna fall over and stuff. Like, you know, it's not gonna work out. So like you have to just let it happen. And it and it's and it's um for some people listening to this right now, they're they're probably like, I I don't get it. Like, cause but it's one of those things is you experience it and as you experiment with that mental attitude like it'll start you'll start making some breakthroughs. So at least that's what I think.
1: Yeah. So uh, question,
0: question question from CT Cowboys on YouTube. So that's a fun when, when we have the YouTube watchers, we, we get some interesting names sometimes. We don't know who they are sometimes. But uh <laughs> CT here says and it and I don't know how to respond to this question myself because uh, the part of me is like, I don't know if I agree with what he's asking the, with the, the the premise of this question. But here's what his question is. Why do most of the experienced shooters make new shooters feel so unwelcome, even if they are willing to learn?
1: Hmm. So maybe that reaction is that in most of the composition events that I've been to, like especially sanctioned events by USPSA or Steel Challenge or IDPA or whatever, We have, all of these sanctioning bodies have very, very stringent safety rules, right? And the safety rules are multi-layered from a perspective of, you have to break multiple safety rules before anybody actually gets hurt, right? So you have to do something like super bad, multiple failures in in the same time before anybody, quote unquote, gets shot, right? Or something bad could happen. And when newer shooters they come into that environment i can see them construing that as not being welcomed because their quote-unquote normal gun handling is not acceptable in this competitive environment you know gun handling requirement right so and i i've absolutely seen like super nice people normally give newer shooters or any shooters, the riot act when they see others doing unsafe stuff. Right. And to me, I, I look at that from a perspective of, Hey, we all want to go home with the same amount of holes we came with. Right. Yep. And if that means that we're policing each other and largely in all these competitive practical shooting sports, we, we are, we, it's a volunteer sport, so We're, you know, officiating ourselves. It's all based on the honor system around are we adhering to the rules and whatnot. So everybody is responsible from the safety perspective. So I can see from that perspective, from a safety scenario, where somebody is is wanting to do unsafe stuff and that's just normal to them. And then the competitive shooters find that unacceptable, I can see that happening. The other factor that maybe you see is that competitive anything attracts a type personalities right? And A-type personalities usually have big egos, right? And they, you know, that bravado or that I'm better than you. And let me show you how to do this. And you don't know how to do anything. You know, that's part of that kind of personality that it's attracted to, not just the shooting sports, but pretty much any competitive sport, right? So there's always that factor of it, right? And, you know, I kind of look at it as like, we're all adults right and if you feel that someone's abusing you on the range verbally or emotionally call them out be like hey dude quit acting like a jackhole right
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and ask what am I doing wrong like am I doing something wrong it's against the rules or if not then beat it like I don't want to hear about it yeah right so maybe that's the answer I don't know yeah um
0: my my general experience with especially with the competitive shooting communities is by and large uh people are incredibly helpful uh that's been my experience since the get-go i remember showing up at my very first three gun match which was at at your your same gun club run by by mike uh out there and uh I, I had to just trust somebody that said, Hey, just show up. Cause if you don't have some, some equipment that you need, like we'll, we'll take care of you. Like that's, so we'll have it. I, I heard that. And I was like, well, I don't have a, a shot shell carrier, you know, to put shot shells on my belt or whatever. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to go and see if somebody will actually lend me one. Uh, mm-hmm. And I showed up and, you know, I, cause I, had, I pretty much had everything else. I had, you know, a belt and holster and, pouches for my my pistol and rifle mags but i didn't have any way to to carry shotgun shells and thought i was going to be doing it from the pocket and show up and and talk to to mike the match director and you're the match director of your own match i just found mike and said hey mike i'm new i have no idea what i'm doing uh and he's like oh great glad to have you uh you know what you know let me know what you need kind of thing you have any questions and i was like well actually i have no idea how to carry shot shells with me i don't have a a a carrier or anything like that. And he's like, Oh great. I'll set you up with one. And a few minutes later he comes over with one and lends me one, or actually it might've been from another competitor. I don't remember exactly. And that has, and I've seen that very same thing play out again and again and again at many matches. So I think part of my response to uh, CT cowboys on YouTube here would be that um, I think mostly people are very co- kind and welcoming in the shooting sports but there are always exceptions and there are always bad apples and there are always and I do hear about those stories too I have a friend that went to his first USPSA match and had a very negative experience it was mostly because of a of an individual uh that was present and was doing a lot of the ROing and their attitude about it was not very helpful towards him as a new shooter and so that does happen and I would say um try to have thick skin and understand that there are bad apples and come back again and try to maybe interact with somebody else. Uh, and, and and chances mm-hmm. are your next experience will go better.
1: Yep. That's cool. Great advice. Cool.
0: Um, Connor asks, um, and, and we are kind of getting a little bit long in time here, but, uh, uh, but there's questions. So I'm going to go ahead and ask them as long as you're still good, uh, Charlie. Yeah, let's do it. He asks, with respect to shooting cold, what's the easiest way for you to spot and correct or, at, or address issues you see within the first handful of rounds? Interesting question.
1: So I think that a lot, so a lot of the failures that we have when the gun's going boom can be directly tied back to the, the things that we're not doing in dry fire. Like a, a very common mistake that I see people make, and when I when a lot of people consider dry fire, it's almost exclusively gun handling stuff, like draws and reloads and those kind of things. Well, if we're gripping the gun with the proper amount of pressure to manage recoil, transition between targets effectively, that kind of stuff, we really can't grip that hard for a long duration, right? So. One of the things I ask my students is like, hey, tell me what your drive fire you know, program is, your schedule is. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, I, I drive fire draws for like a half hour and then do reloads for an hour. And I'm like, wow, like just from a a, you know, beat up your appendage perspective, if you have the right amount of hand speed and aggression, if I want to slap down to a magazine and do an aggressive reload, I got about 15 in me before I'm bruising my hand and getting bloody knuckles and stuff, because you need that level of hand aggression to do that. So the people that have this excessive frequency of draws or reloads and that kind of handling stuff that tells me that they're either, they don't have the right aggression in their movement, but more importantly, they're not using the proper amount of grip pressure when they're doing those things. Right. So, and this is where like, I, in my own arc of performance, I had to learn this lesson the hard way myself where I was that guy doing a bunch of draws and a bunch of reloads and I could do a bunch of it and I'd go out and when I'd live fire it, my live fire times would always be slower than my dry fire times. And I'm like, why is this? And in one aspect of it was that physical element of it, meaning I was not gripping the gun with the proper amount of pressure and dry fire, which meant now this is a manufactured distraction on, when I'm in live fire, now I have to grip the gun because it will recoil.
2: Mm.
1: And now that is a distraction because it's a decision I have to make after the buzzer goes off. I have to draw the gun and now, yes, I have to grip hard now instead of I have to grip hard all of the time. So one of the fixes that I had for that is that I told myself, no matter what type of gun handling I'm doing, anytime I pick up a gun and I put it in my hand, I'm going to grip that thing like it's gonna go off. So that's dry fire, cleaning the gun, checking it that's safe, pulling it out of the range bag, checking it safe, putting in the safe. I grip that thing as if it could fire at any time. And guess what? It's no longer a choice. Right? There's no choice of not gripping the gun with the proper pressure. Hmm. So that's where. Like for a lot of people, if you feel like, oh, I can do a one-second draw and dry fire, and then when I get into live fire, it's a one point two or a one point three or whatever, it's some higher time. A big element of that is the physical factor of it. The other part of it is that you're not respecting what is needed visually in the sight, yep. right? And for a lot of people, if they're dry firing in their house, especially with iron sights the lighting conditions in your house are way worse than they are at the range. So like, let's say that you are, like if I wanted to do a draw in my house in this room right now, my draws time to a valid site picture is absolutely gonna be slower than if I was out on the range in the middle of the day, simply because the lighting is worse. It takes me longer to find and acquire the sites in this lighting scenario. So if I'm trying to push, abnormally push and say well i know i can do a one second draw i'm just going to set a part time on my shot timer and do a one second draw regardless of what sight picture i see now i'm ingraining that bad habit of i don't have to see a sight picture before i pull the trigger mm-hmm. right and all of those bad habits manifest when we get out on the rage and we actually want to perform and that's when we discover those things of like holy cow I'm three or four shots in, in this mag and the gun is dancing around in my hand so much that it's all over the place Well, because you don't grip the gun hard all the time. It's a good example of that. Or you have good fast, fast hands gripping hard, but you didn't respect your sight picture and dry fire. And now when you go out and live fire, you can get the gun out of the holster and on target super fast, but you delay in shooting because now you're, you have to actually see a sight picture to hit what you're shooting at. Right. So a big part of this is practicing right to start off with and identifying those things that what am I doing different in dry fire versus live fire? And that helps. The other part of it, like of this question is really you need recon or information to assess what you're doing. Right. So I'll I'll set up a tripod and I'll video myself practicing on the range when I'm there. And most importantly, I'm videoing my drive fire iterations of the stage because if I can't figure it out directly by feeling and seeing what's happening, I'll go back to the video and I'll be able to pick it out and say, oh, that's what I'm doing physically wrong. I need to change that. Hopefully that helps. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just put it up here on the screen too. Connor said that was a great answer. So I think it was helpful. One more question from Connor, and I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, He asks, uh, when shooting competition or even training, how do you adjust to different round loads? Uh, In other words, from there, how do you adjust to hotter, say, carry rounds?
1: Uh, That's actually a good question because I think that's one element that is absolutely different between competition shooting and you know, concealed carry or self-defense shooting is that you we don't have a wallet thick enough <laughs> to shoot defense ammo exclusively in practice, right? That would be way too expensive. But you could manufacture a reload that mimics that same hot recoil impulse at the cheaper cost of reloaded components, right? Mm-hmm. And in my like in my competition universe, like some people like to to say, "Oh, well, this is my practice ammo and this is my match ammo, like that," and they apply different manufacturing or quality control process between these two different ammunitions. I found that to be a disaster because it, it would almost always be, "Oh, I ran out of match ammo, and I' going to try to make this, try to case cage this ammo right away, or maybe I didn't reload it to the right, paying attention, you know, squibs and that kind of thing." So, you know, I learned early on that. There's no such thing as different ammos. All of my ammo is match ammunition, right? And if it doesn't meet my spec of match ammunition, I knock out the bullets and I reload it, right? I I don't even go down the path of, well, this is the crappy ammo I'm going to do this one weird thing with. It's just not worth it to me. And since the division I normally shoot is limited division, and in USPSA, we have power factors, major power factor and minor power factor. I shoot a 40 caliber, um, 2011 style pistol and the power factor, the minimum power factor in that is 165 which with 180 grain bullets that's going like 950 feet per second so i i shoot i because chronos are different across all of the whole country i artificially make my ammo hotter than it really needs to be that way that is not a distraction where oh i'm super close to making power factor am i gonna go minor you know that kind of stuff so Mm-hmm. All of my ammunition is is usually like 170 to 175 power factor, which is right at that self-defense load level, like power. So I'm shooting quote unquote hot ammo all the time. That way when I pick up a, a like a self-defense gun, like a self-defense nine millimeter or even a 45, it doesn't like the recoil impulse doesn't feel like, oh my God, that's crazy. Like it's It goes, boom, I control the, I manage recoil and it, I hit what I'm shooting at, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's one way that I kind of make myself ammo power agnostic, Mm -hmm. right? I I just make it all hot.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's a lot easier when you're in a major power factor, uh, division, uh, me, I'm shooting minor carry optics, which, uh, Can be a little bit different. I will say this much: that my my one thirty five, my current one thirty five grain loads uh, are not all that different in terms of how they recoil. I would say, and you know, like they're they're there's they're a lot weaker than what Charlie's shooting in limited major power factor, but there's certain defensive loads out there like for instance your standard pressure 147 grain federal HST actually isn't that bad it's actually pretty pretty soft shooting um but there's some guys that absolutely insist they got to carry you know 124 grain plus peas that is going to be very different and I don't know how to answer that one you know as far as like well you know buy a good stash and practice with your your one twenty four grain plus piece, or maybe you know play around with some reloads or some major power factor stuff that maybe gets you closer to that. But um, I, th- one of the reasons why I carry a one forty seven grain at least now one forty seven grain Federal HST is it's close to my actual competition load, um, but it's still a a, a reputable load that has a, a good track record for on the street performance. And and the cool thing there too, is that it's very, very, very close to, um, you know, the same, same ballistic tra- trajectory as, as my, as my match ammo as well. So I don't really have to change zero. Uh, if anything, it's like, it's like on my carry gun. Um, and I leave it always zeroed into my, to my carry ammo. And if I switch from, my carry ammo you know, if I, if I go from or with my carry gun and I put my match ammo in there, it'll impact like an inch right and an inch low for whatever reason at 25 yards. And so it's like, you know what? I could deal with that. Again, that's with my carry gun. My match guns are obviously sighted in for my match ammo. And, uh, but anyway, that's, that's kind of been my approach. It's not a perfect approach. I have experimented a little bit with with loading a perfectly matched, at least as good as I can, uh, uh, reload that that mimics my my defensive load, um, and I've done that and I've done that successfully. But it's too much effort to, like you were talking about, like having multiple, you know, reloads and having to manage that for like the same gun. Practically is kind of a pain in the butt. You know, my press is set up right now for my match ammo, and for me to switch, you know, to change grain weight or change powders, change even bullets because now I've got a different, uh, you know, uh, overall length that that I'm loading to, or the bullet profile is different, and so that, you know, like that's just that's just pain I don't want to have to go through to switch, you know, things around in my reloading uh, world. So I got something that was close. So if I put my current my current match ammo. Shoots, per, it shoots very soft in my match gun, and when I put it in like my P365 XL, for instance, it feels not all that different from shooting standard pressure factory defensive loads. So, I, and and some into the question about plus PMO, uh, you don't have to run plus PMO. There are standard pressure options out there that will give you all that you need, performance wise. Just do the research and you'll be fine. So, yeah, my my take.
1: I mean I I kind of think that like I think that at least the people that I know that have their own specific carry ammo I think that they that carry ammo is in those guns way too long. Oh for like, sure. Like you should be, they? You should be you should shooting, be shooting that stuff up. It. You know, you should be mm-hmm. chewing through that stuff as much as you can and I think there's this like kind of this wives tale that a lot of people have that, Oh, I don't want to wear out my gun or I don't want to wear it to the point where it's going to malfunction on me. I mean, the reality is, is that you can shoot a lot of these guns way more than people really expect. Right. You know, the life cycle of a lot, especially today and the, the, all these manufacturing processes that are so improved and the quality of materials and, you know, all that stuff is so good these days that just shoot. Just shoot the stuff, right? Shoot it up. Get used to it. Especially if you're you're in a mode of like you're continually like chambering around and unchambering it every day. Right. You're gonna knock back, you're gonna set back those bullets and you're gonna like for those, like I've seen guys like I, they're like, oh look at my carry gun and their their bullet, their top <laughs> bullet is so set back. And I tell them like, dude, I would not shoot that. Like that thing is going to blow up. And they're like, huh? I, I don't understand. What That's a dollar. I'm like, and I asked him, like, how much is your face worth? Is it worth more than a dollar? Okay. Let's change that bullet out. Right. Or how much is your hand worth? And I don't know.
0: Yeah. No, you're spot on with that. Um, I mean, and I, I've talked about it before on the podcast that I think rotating through your carry ammo uh, once every six months, not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Some guys could do more frequently. Some guys maybe a little less frequently. Um, but uh, that was my, my I'm big picture.
1: Like, Think about it from a liability perspective. Yeah. Like you can, you can shoot a lot of ammo for the cost of litigation. Oh, right? for sure. Right. You could shoot oh, a lot sure. of ammo for the same amount of money you spend on going out to dinner or even gas and driving to the range and back right so i don't know
0: yep yep for sure so true i mean it's all about perspective and people oftentimes lose a uh, sight of perspective in in search of saving a nickel mm-hmm. so
1: good good thoughts good thoughts
0: well uh
1: awesome guys so i've been looking at the comments should we yeah. announce who, who the winners are
0: all right. So who who are you going to pick, Charlie? Who's your two so, book recipients? I,
1: I think that I really don't think there was any bad questions, which was good. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I think we got to pick two good question winners, right? So I think it's going to be Elkie and it's going to be uh, Connor. All right. And so you guys, thank you very much for your questions and, Hopefully we were able to provide some quality answers and knowledge for you guys on that. And um, if you can get your information to Riley, he will uh, let me know your you know, shipping information and I'll mm-hmm. get you some books out. There you go. There you go.
0: Excellent. Uh, we will, uh, we'll make that happen. So uh, Elki I know knows how to reach me. So uh, I'll have him. You know, send me a message. And Connor, uh, we'll, we'll connect as well. I'll make sure we do. Congratulations, you guys. And, and thanks to everyone for being a part of this episode with us. Uh, I hope you got some uh, little nuggets and words of wisdom from this episode with Charlie uh, that hopefully you can take home or take to the practice range and utilize to do better in achieving your best cold performance. Whether you're trying to shoot and do well your next match or if, heaven forbid, next week, next month, next year, you got to draw your gun in self-defense. I I sincerely hope and wish you all are able to make those shots count and get the job done uh, because there's no second chances. So so with that, um, Charlie, uh, well, again, your website is bigpandaperformance.com. Uh, anything else you want to say as far as uh, you know, letting everyone uh, or leaving everybody with good with the good word, or anything you want to say as far as where they can find you or anything you got coming up, whether it's classes, whatever.
1: No, so uh, I you know if you want to reach out and get more information about my my training offerings or order my book, it's all on my website, bigpanaperformance.com dot com, and uh, I I really appreciate Riley your time having you know participating in this and let me join your your unofficial official co-hosting, you know, <laughs> entertainment device, whatever you want to call it. And hopefully I'll have an opportunity again in the future to do it. And if, if you guys have any questions, you know, reach out, ask them that kind of stuff. Right.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And we do appreciate your time and for uh, sharing your wealth of no- knowledge with us. And- so with that, we are going to let you guys go. Have a great day rest of your day wherever you may be and be safe out there and don't forget to train right train often and train safe so you can fight hard fight fast and fight true take care